Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. Joining me is a guy who started out in a small mining town in India with no running water, ended up with a job at a major American company, and still wasn't satisfied, said, I've got to start my own business. And he did, and it didn't go very well. <laughs> but um, he went back to India and decided to get back in the game and backed other companies as a venture capitalist and then started another company that did do well and actually sold to Oracle and now is back with yet another company. And I invited him here to talk about that whole process and we'll spend a lot of time focusing on his latest company, which is called Colum. And what Colum does is they allow, you know, when you haven't checked your credit card bill for months and you go back in and you look and you say, hey, you know what? Why do we suddenly have this subs two subscription services for Disney Plus? Oh, my wife and maybe my kids signed up and they didn't know that they both did it and we could share an account. Right? Well, businesses have that but multiplied, multiplied by uh, the number of people in the businesses and also multiplied by the amount of money that's spent. And so Colum says, we can help you solve that. And that's his latest business. And before that, he ran a company called Bitzer, which does mobile security. And truthfully, when I saw that, I said, boring. There's no way we could make this. And then I talked to him for about 40 minutes before we got started. And I realized, no, this guy is good. And this business is interesting. And we're going to talk about all of it. Thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, if you're looking to hire developers, I've told you already, and you've been going there. So I don't know why they keep paying me, but you already know. Go to lemon.io slash Mixergy. And the second, if you're trying to invest in a company or maybe pool a group of people together to invest in a company, I'm going to tell you how Vauban.ai is the organization you should be working with. They're going to turn you into an angel investor and then some. But first, Indus, Caden, it's good to have you on here. Thanks for being here with me. Thank you, Andrew. That was a fantastic intro. Happy to be here. Thanks. How much did you sell Bitzer for to Oracle? Uh, we sold it to close to $50 million to Oracle. Wow. How much of that do you end up with for all that hard work? Well, we were three founders, so we divided uh, close to 25% of the proceedings amongst each other. Okay. So life-changing situation here definitely life's changing situation but more than that i kept a promise with my wife saying hey gonna start this i'm sure it's gonna turn out to be okay and she said you're effing out of your mind but she let me do it but at the end of the day when it turned out to be okay she be she when became happy you and i chatted a few days ago and one of the things you said to me was my wife no longer worries about failure because of bitzer I worried about failure for most of my life. At some point recently, I just got rid of that thought, which now now that I say it out loud, I worry that I don't worry about failure anymore. But when you did, did you stay up nights thinking, what if this doesn't work? How did that manifest itself in you and your wife? I think it's a, as an entrepreneur, it's a constant nagging feeling. It's like, you know, uh, what's a great analogy? So you are like a, a person who has gone on war and there's a good chance that you will never come back. And starting a business is nothing different than that. You know, you can fail or you can die. You'll burn out of all your savings. Your kid's college future is going to jeopardize because you don't have money left. So I worried about it every day 
until Bitzer got done. I had several failures. Nobody knows, you know, she knows it. But now I don't. I have a totally different perspective on how to build a business. Let's go back and understand how you did this. I'd like to just go a little bit back um, further than I think most entrepreneur interviews would, would go. But this small mining town, when you say no water, how would you shower? How did you drink as a kid? Surprisingly, all the homes had a faucet, but no running water. The water would be rationed. It would show up magically at odd hours, sometimes like at 8 in the morning, sometimes at 6 p.m. in the evening, because, you know, the supply is not designed to be fed on a 24 running hour basis. So let's say I want to have a shower, you know, winter, and I would say, Mom, shower. Mom's going to say, okay, let me check. Okay, no water. All right, so let me see which one has the storage. So she'll look for some buckets in the bathroom. All right, two buckets full of water. Winter, mom's going to take some water, take a big pot, heat it up while I'm waiting. This is like 90, so no phones to huddle around, right? Just waiting. Water warms up. Mom comes back, puts in the bucket mixes it with enough of a cold water just to smoothen the temperature and that's my limited supply you know if i waste it my face is going to be lathered and left behind or i finish it up contrast that with today my kids said dad going for shower all right go yeah and both kids could take a shower at the same time and not worry about running out of hot water (laughs) what town was this where was it in india it's a small town called Dhanbad, D-H-A-N-B-A-D. It's a mining town. Yeah, you know, if, if you have lived closer to collieries where, you know, coal's mined, in, even in West Virginia, United States, very similar, you know, dump trucks, you know, taking, you know, truck full of coal, passing by, debris, back and forth, sand to fill up the mines, you know, passing by. Very vividly remember those. The first or one of the first entrepreneurs that you saw was the knife sharpening man. When I lived in Argentina, we would see someone like that. He would come by with this bike-like thing. He would pedal, and the pedal would move the sharpener, and then he would take your knife, and he would put it over that thing, and it would get sharpened, and you'd pay him, and it, it looked beautiful. Um, what was like? What was your impression of the knife sharpening guy? Very, very well said. So the reason I would stop at the knife sharpening guy is exactly because of that. So while sharpening, sparks would come out. And, you know, it's like a mini fireworks I would observe every day coming back from school. And and watching that, I would wonder, why would somebody take that job? Isn't that grueling? Will he not, you know, chop, maim his limbs or fingers? And then uh, a random conversation, he said, no, I do this on my own. Nobody's forcing me to do. I have a family. I have a kid. This is my life. This is my business. And that's when it kind of got ingrained in me that, hey, this is a business of one. Somebody is doing it to make his living. Fast forward, it's a very vivid memory of that conversation. Not exact words, but I remember standing in front talking to him and and recognizing this fact. You got a job at Symantec, come to the U.S., right? You do well there. You're there for like four years. Why 
what was it that made you want to become an entrepreneur? What's the idea that set you off on this path? I think two or three things happened as layers. So I'm an, I'm an engineer, computer science professional, designed to write code. What happened at Symantec, I got this transition into marketing. And there I found that, hey, it's not just the code that you write, it is the package, it's the messaging, it's the product that matters to the customers. And this was 2007, 2008 days, social media was being born. So Facebook came out, Twitter came out, and a random experience at Walmart about returning something that I bought, I thought, hey, why doesn't Walmart have a social media presence where I could just tweet out, say, I'm not happy with the product, can you take it back? Instead of me sending a support ticket or calling in hours. So that got an idea in me saying, hey, let's start a business. Left Semantic, started Tejit. Absolutely wrong time to start a brand new business. A month after I left Semantic, Bear Stearns collapsed. If you remember 2007, 2008, housing bubble, that happened. Tejit is uh, just was a dream that could not come to fruition. I eight or nine months ran out of guts, ran out of money. You know, got a one-way ticket, went back to India. What was the before and after on your bank account? I had around eighty-eight or ninety thousand-ish. Uh, in my bank account, roughly around 100K before I started. I had two kids, me and my wife, family of four, living in an apartment. Uh, we roughly burned through 70, 80% of the savings. So I had probably 10,000 or $12,000 left when I decided, oh, man, this is not working out. We have to figure out a way. And absolutely scary last few months. There was also a situation where not related to the money, but related to the the stress, our electricity was turned off in our apartment for like 48 hours. Okay. And so now no electricity in the house, business isn't doing well. It all adds to the sense of nothing's going right for us. And so you then go back to India, I'm guessing to cut back on costs, to get a little bit more stability for your family before you decide what to do next. Am I right? That's right. There's a small thing that happened in between. So as I was going through this downturn in my own personal life, I was trying to figure out how to raise money, how to get some more money to survive. So I got connected to a, a wonderful human being and he introduced me to a guy called Jitendra Gupta. He was running another company called Sezhu. And he said, of course, we are not heavily funded. He he had raised a small amount of money, like a million dollars, but I can give you a soft landing. So I can give you a job, but you got to move to India, start a you know back office for us, like an engineering center, and then we'll figure out what happens. So while I ran out of money, I moved to India. I have a soft landing. I work for Sezu for six months. Unfortunately, Sezu also ran through the same troubles that was folded pretty quickly. And then the the good part is I was in India, so I had some plan B. Worst case, I go back to my parents in Dunbar and live with them. But, you know, one thing after the other, and then Morpheus was born. That was the, the lemon that turned into lemonade. That was an amazing journey. Dude, that's the thing that I don't get. Like, here you are, a guy whose company failed, 
And then you went for to work at another company and that failed. And your next step is to say, you know, I think I'm going to create the Y Combinator of India. I think I'm going to be the guy who, like Paul Graham, teaches, guides, and fosters the next generation of entrepreneurs. Where do you get off doing that? How did you have the self-confidence to do it? And then what's the credibility that allowed you to do it? Zero creds. Absolutely agree. But that failure, that period of last six to eight months taught me something. You are at zero. You have nothing. I have seen a failure. I see how startups work. I see how startups fail. And back then, 2008, 2009, India was at a very nascent startup ecosystem. There was no venture fund that was putting money in early stage. So I had seen that story of success in Silicon Valley where small companies were getting funded. Airbnb was a story that came out, you know, of course, popular now, uh, Justin.tv. Again, these are Y Combinator startups. And I thought, hey, there's an opportunity to do something. I had two choices, go take up a job or start something of my own. I had zero guts to start another startup like a tech startup because you know I like namaste I'm not doing it anymore <laughs> but this whole whole uh-huh. notion of you know the y combinator clone was a spark that just could not be extinguished in my brain and then got connected to a couple of other people who said yes this is a great idea let's work together so found two co-founders and me zero money in our bank account and then we prepared a deck a 15 slider and went out to raise money for our own first quarter million fund for Morpheus that was the Y Combinator in India. So to your question, I don't have a pedigree as a VC, not a successful entrepreneur in the eyes of the ecosystem, but let's just bloody do it. That was the idea. And where'd you get the money? Who backed you on this? We luckily found five limited partners as I now know that is what is called. Mm-hmm. And that they said, oh, this is interesting. You guys are going to put $12,000 in 25 startups. That sounds amazing. India is at an early stage of startup boom. Great idea. Here is $15,000. Here is $20,000. Here is $40,000. And we clobbered together that first fund. And we started investing money. Uh, we got lucky with our second investment, a company called Practo. Two young boys, fresh out of college, had the dream of doing something in the medical practice space. We bump into each other at a random event and the rest is history. So Practo raises money from Sequoia and we were like an unknown kid. The moment the Sequoia endorsement happens, we become an, we, we become basically celebrities overnight. And you'll not believe in six months, I had probably 25 media stories. Sometimes on page three, my mug was going to show up. Sometimes my guest post would show up. Absolute stardom from no one to someone who's funding startups. But I'm, I'm not following. Where did you get the money? Who, who was it? Or what type of person would say, yes, I want to do it? Is it is it another investor? Is it someone who does angel investments usually? Is it a successful startup entrepreneur who wanted more people like him? So the five individuals were successful operators and executives in other large businesses who have made you know, a few million dollars here and there. And they saw this opportunity that we were bringing to create something new. 
and okay. think of them as angels in us okay, they were yeah. not experienced investors okay all right and then you're not doing it anymore i saw the article that said that you left you told me look i realize i'm not cut out for vc what was it about the vc world that that you weren't cut out for one thing that i i realized so i'm an operator i'm a builder at heart i'm an engineer so when i went into the other side not knowing what i was getting into um i hate to say this but i feel that the job of vc is take a few calculated bets on other people's efforts and let them work hard and then you know, of course you reap the reward after a gestation of 5 to 10 years you don't participate in the building journey this is against the conventional wisdom what we read in the press it feels like the investors are participating they are but on a very limited way you know probably have a ringside view but they are not in the arena playing the game and i realized that hey i'm not built out for that my hairs were absolutely black at that moment and say hey i'm i'm going to go go back and build something you know i have oh, stabilized yeah. my career did this for 2 years it's amazing to work with entrepreneurs but i'm going to become one again and that's when i quit by the way one of the entrepreneurs who you backed uh what is his name vivek ravi shankar he is the founder of hacker rank who i interviewed um and he not only was backed by you but eventually y combinator got him into their program right so there was like this connection now to this world that you wanted to emulate Yep, uh, Vivek was one of our very early investments. I very much remember uh, Vivek and Hari, the two founders, in an apartment in Bangalore and me visiting them and both sitting um not a couch, they're sitting on on a on a mat on the ground and poring over a book to figure out how to interview founders or how to interview <laughs> people uh to get them to clear the interviews right so it was just amazing and few we just got lucky because you know nothing special that we did you know india was early there was a pent up demand for what we created and then there was a sort of inbound flow of uh, entrepreneurs yeah. that we put yeah. money on it had the hunger and then it also had the cost consciousness and everything else that you expect to go into it the the fluency in english that you would expect anyway hackeranka for people who don't know it's a technical assessment and remote interview solution basically for hiring developers all right i should take a moment now and talk about my first sponsor it's a company called vabon and here's what it does imagine if there's someone like you who says you know I have a few ideas for these companies that need to get backing i believe in this one type of company i or maybe even it's one specific company that they believe in maybe it's you imagine you say this i still see a great company in india i want to back them but i don't want to be the only person to back them so you go to vabon and you set up a special purpose vehicle they give you links that you could give to people like me and others and they work internationally so you don't have to stick with the us you don't have to stick with just the us and india you can go all over go to the middle east go to europe go wherever you want and say I found this company. I don't want to back on myself because what I'm looking for is not just money, but people who can they can call on for support. So you Andrew, maybe you can chat with them about how they could tell their story well on um in, in interviews into the media. And then you go to somebody else and you say I'd like you to invest because I want you to be able to help them vet their developers and so on. Now, how do you put that thing together? Well, yeah, you can hire a lawyer and put it together or there are other organizations that'll do it, but they only work in the US. But we're seeing that some of the biggest investors now, the ones who are most open 
open with their wallets are in other parts of the world. Like I said, Middle East, Europe, and so on, they're all there. And if this is what you want to tap, Vauban will let you set up this, the special purpose vehicle. They'll make it easy for you to, to start collecting investments, make it easy for you to then go and invest in this company that you want to back, and give all of us who are working together a dashboard and a platform to interact, to know where things stand. All right, that's what they do. If anyone out there is listening to me and says, you know what, that's exactly what I want to do. In fact, I know the company or I know the idea that I want to go into. Here's what you do. You go to vauban.io slash angels. V-A-U-B-A-N dot I-O slash angels. They will set you up, even if you've never done this before, even the whole world of angel investing is, is unfamiliar to you. If you know what you want to back and you have a sense of who you want to reach out to, they will put everything else together for you and make it super easy. Like, like Asana makes it easy to collaborate. They'll do it like that. All right. Thank you, Vauban, for sponsoring. So you decide, this is not for me, I'm going back into business, and then the next business that you start becomes the big powerhouse. Where did you even come up with the idea for this? And I know the idea evolved. What was the first idea, and where did you come up with it, Indus? The first idea was, so my co-founder, Ali, he thought, hey, mobile is catching up. Wouldn't every business need a mobile website? Kind of yeah. obvious, right? Yeah. So he started tinkering no, with that I mean, and... Maybe now you could say it's obvious and now it's not so necessary, but I get it that at the time it was like, no, Steve Jobs says I don't need a, a, a mobile website. Okay, so this is roughly when, when we're looking at. Uh, the year was, let me see, roughly... 20, 2010? 2010. The iPhone had been released about three years before. Okay, so that's yeah, the idea. 20, How do we build websites for companies that are mobile friendly? Yeah, 2010 iPhone's penetration was up. I think it was the... 3GS, if I'm not wrong, if my memory is not failing me, I think iPhone 3GS was just announced and people started realizing, oh, iPhone thing is pretty incredible. And that's when Ali got an idea. Ali is the CTO and co-founder of my previous startup. Hey, we could build a business building mobile websites for other companies. And said, yeah, sounds good. And then soon realized that, nah, it's like too much of a work. People will not buy it. There's infrastructure to worry about. And then we brainstormed thinking, oh, the bigger problem is, and this came up in a conversation with, uh, with with a potential customer, that executives that have iPad and iPhones, they are not able to access their intranet from their iPhone device because IT would not allow it, security pol policies would prohibit it. And I thought, hey, that's an interesting one to solve because you know people are on the go, they would carry two holsters one containing BlackBerry yeah. and the second containing iPhone. Yeah. They would only want to carry one. That and they wanted it to be the iPhone, not the BlackBerry that their company gave them. They want the iPhone that lets them listen to Pandora and all those other things that came with the first versions of the iPhone. Okay. Absolutely. And the proverbial executive would go to their IT. They'll say, hey, get out of my way. We don't allow it. So what happens is in Fortune 500 companies, they use this thing called a smart card. See, it's like a physical card, looks like your identity badge, and the smart card enables them to access the corporate intranet. Think of that as a second factor authentication, which is now very common as in a Google Authenticator or you know SMS that comes to you. Hey, sign in your with your code after your username and password. So back then, the smart card was a second factor. There's no slot on the iPhone. There's no, no gap in the iPad to insert a smart card. So 
we basically came up with an idea. What if we replicate the smart card as an app on an iPhone? And that was the germination of a larger business that we went after. Kind of like Authy, and now there are a bunch of different tools that do this that create the code for your two-factor authentication. But you didn't create your, I guess you didn't create your own standalone. You somehow piggybacked off the functionality of this smart card that employees needed in order to access their desktop computers. How did you do that? Did the company that made them allow you to do it? No, if you look at the smart card, it's actually a very simple product, right? So the smart card contains a chip, which has a very small memory, probably 1K. All it does, it contains what's called in security parlance, a digital certificate. You know, a bunch of code that is strung together and a four-digit password that you only remember. Now, when you insert this smart card on your laptop, guess what happens? The, the Windows device reads the certificate and prompts you for that code. And you type in the code, one, two, three, four, boom, you're authenticated and you're inside the intranet. We just took that idea, instead of using the smart card, the hardware, use the app as a smart card. So we will deploy okay. a certificate on a mobile app. You would still remember the password. The certificate would be sent to the servers. It will unlock the intranet for you and boom, you have access to your email, your corporate intranet, your PowerPoint presentations, your wiki and you know all sorts of internal documents without violating security policies which the network guys have enforced. Did, did they need to get permission from their tech department at their companies in order to do this? Or was this the kind of thing that they could just implement on their own? They have to get the permission uh, because the certificates, just like getting deployed on a physical device or a physical card, the certificates would be deployed on a mobile app. So we would deploy this infrastructure on their, you know, which now in the cloud universe is yes. laughable, it was called DMZ or mm -hmm. in the data centers. And they would deploy our infrastructure and then they would provision the certificate on the mobile phone and hundreds and thousands of employees can seamlessly access their intranet, kill the second holster, make the iPhone and iPad work. The happiest would be the board member or the VC who's carrying his or her iPad saying, oh, why can't I access your documents? Because of mm. course he's on an iPad. So that was a great win for us. So then one of the things that you told me was in the early days, employees would go to, to their IT department and say, why do I have to carry a BlackBerry? And essentially, let me paraphrase, you said the IT department would say, go screw off because it wasn't in the IT's interest to do this. So yes, you found a solution, but a solution that the end user would want, but he's or she's not making that decision. It's the IT department that has to be convinced, and they're not convinced even when their own people come and ask for it. The big question I have is, how do you sell somebody who doesn't feel the problem on a solution that is for somebody else that maybe, I don't know, puts their job at risk or makes them feel uneasy? How do you get someone else to say yes to a solution to a problem they don't have? I think that the problem was with the people who wanted to access, you know, IT knew about this problem. So we found our first customer in the second largest company of the world, Chevron Corporation. And the funny story is my CEO, Naeem, 
he saw the the deputy CIO of Chevron speaking at a conference, and he made a joke about his iPad being inaccessible to his own intranet, although he's a CIO. Right, uh-huh. the, the the mouthpiece of the IT guy is talking about what his IT does not do for him, and the talk gets over, and Naim basically rushes <laughs> and grabs him by the hand, saying, "I have a solution for you." And that's how our journey started. Convince the people who have the problem and let them take you to their IT department saying, oh, look at these guys. And we were a company of 15 people. Their procurement (laughs) team would throw the RFP on our face saying, you will never get selected. You are not (laughs) even in business for three years. And we would say, hey, the board wants it. Your executives want it. Here we are. Wait, how much did you raise? You, I thought you raised like 150 seed. How do you hire so many people with just 150 seed? Did you raise more than that before you were able to hire them? We raised 350 seed. Okay. And that and was enough to hire that many people? Would you say seven people? Yeah, we were seven people. We were, keep in mind, we were in India in 2010. Back then, salaries ah. were very low compared to now. Yeah, 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 so yeah. So three okay, founders and One of them was in Sunnydale, though, wasn't it? We were based out of Sunnyvale. Uh, two of my co-founders, they were in Sunnyvale. I was in India. I was in Bangalore. I Remember, I got one-way yeah. ticket to India. You hadn't come back yet. Okay, got it. So then so then Chevron says, we want this. They, we don't believe you can do it. You prove to them that you can. When I look at old articles about you, it seems that eventually Chevron Technology, what is it called, Ventures, ended up backing you. They said, we like this, we want to buy first, and then we want to invest in you. Is that how it went? That's Dude, how it that's worked. So the CIO of Chevron, friends with the guy who ran the venture arm of Chevron, probably over a drink, I don't know that story, probably Naeem does, introduces that, hey, look at this brand new company, solves this problem. And... I think Jeff at Chevron reaches out to Naeem saying, hey, I just saw that you are getting onboarded. A proof of concept has just started. Are you guys raising any money? And Naeem, Uh of course, you know, always (laughs) raising money. And that's how our Series A happened. So Chevron was the lead. They put in close to 3 million. And then a couple of other investors came along and we were in business. So from seven to then we went up to 35 employees in the journey. I'm seeing old articles about Bitzer, and then I see the old, like, the iPad, the way it used to look. And as I'm reading these old articles, I'm seeing the iPad and the technology, the hardware that you're plugging in to improve. It was a cool ride. Then I see an article in TechCrunch from 2013 about how Oracle quietly acquires enterprise security startup, startup Bitzer Mobile. Why did you sell to Oracle? Why did you sell it all? I think two or three things happen. And this is what, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, a a daily conflict goes in in our mind. So 2013, we were doing good, but we're not doing awesome as a business. You know, we had, we built a product that was designed for only super large companies. And guess how many of them exist? Probably 500 of them, right? Fortune 500 billion dollar in revenue. So in hindsight, Felt like we made a mistake, but you know it was the progression. You build for a cohort, then you go to the next one. So 2013, we're doing great. So we got Chevron as a customer. I didn't tell you that 
Guess who we got the second customer? Who I can Exxon find Mobil. it in my articles. Who? Exxon Mobil. Oh, okay. The competitor and that is competitor. buying Chevron, a company that Chevron uses and invested in. Okay, that's got, that means it's got to be good. Yeah, so we went to ExxonMobil with the same thing. Hey, don't you guys have this problem where executives are not able to access the intranet? So how do you know about it? And we basically, you know, make made Exxon as a customer. So long story short, we could not get more than a dozen or a handful customers. And the customers that we had were still big name companies like UBS Bank, Chevron, Exxon, China Eastern Airlines, Capgemini. These are all half a million to a million dollar ARR accounts, but we are not able to go beyond a few, you know, million dollars of revenue. And 2013, our growth stalled. We were trying to figure out what to do next, and we had to raise the next round or figure out, you know, as a company. So we had partnered, uh, uh, no, we, we've had a, with a customer called General Dynamics. Again, another Fortune 500, the largest defense contractor in the world. So General Dynamics becomes our customer and Oracle gets a wind of it that their applications are now accessible to General Dynamics' intranet by virtue of this random company in Sunnyvale, <laughs> which their team could not figure out a solution for. Uh -huh. Oracle comes calling. They sign a partnership agreement saying, oh, we're going to do joint sales, joint marketing, and, and blah, blah, blah. Three months later, somebody from their identity management group reaches out saying, hey, are you guys interested in a strategic M&A discussion? And of course, we were contemplating what to do, you know, what would be the next set of growth. Long story, but in the board and all of us decided that this is the best path for the company. And then we did an M&A with Oracle. So they came in first. How do we partner up? Because if our customers are using this, let's sell it together. And then, well, since we're selling it together, we want to own it. Dude, I found an old post from Naeem, your co-founder from 2013. Here's the post uh, announcing it. He goes, the journey took 999 days exactly and came down with a perfect landing. So that was it. Less than a thousand days in business and you sell the company. Phenomenal. Meanwhile, by the way, Naeem is not big on Twitter. That huge announcement got like six likes. <laughs> He's more of a builder, I guess, than a tweeter, which is good. All right. I want to know why you ended up at Charge B, but first I should say to anyone listening, notice how we just talked about how back then working with developers in India meant you got quality developers at a much lower price than you would in the US. Well, that's kind of the idea behind the team at Lemon. Lemon.io will do that, but they work with Eastern European company with Eastern European developers. They started out with people in Ukraine. Truthfully, after the war, they had to expand beyond, but that forced them to really start looking beyond Ukraine, and they have found a phenomenal group of developers that they will match anyone who's listening to me up with based on your needs, based on what you're working on, based on the temperament, based on how much time you want, and you'll have a vetted developer and a team of people at Lemon making sure that that developer is doing right by you. If you want to get started, they already have incredibly low prices. Like I said, they go to these countries where you can get phenomenal developers at a great price. But if you want an even lower price from them, I've been friends with the founder for a very long time. He's actually coming to Austin. We're going to get together uh, for a drink. Actually, I wonder if he drinks alcohol. I bet you he doesn't. He's too much of a nerd to drink alcohol. I'm going to say that. Alex is not an alcohol drinker. Um, 
but I, but he is a smart, hardworking entrepreneur. And if you want to hire from him at a lower price, you go to lemon.io slash Mixergy. That's lemon.io slash Mixergy. Okay, dude, here's the thing. Then you go to work at Chargebee. I love Chargebee. I had no idea how huge Chargebee was until I interviewed one of the founders here on Mixergy. They do subscription, recurring management billing. They are kind of a quiet company with phenomenal sales. Why do you go to work for Chargebee after you've done so well with Bitzer? I think the same same thing. Like You're curious as an entrepreneur, as an engineer, you are curious about everything in life. Before Chargebee, I had not built or sold products to small and medium businesses and, and was very curious around you know, the, this whole phenomena of inbound content-driven mm-hmm. marketing, acquiring customers at $9 per person per month kind of phenomena. It's like big, big, um, you know, back then and still now. So I get connected to Krish, the CEO and co-founder with one of their investors. And this was a time when I was kind of figuring out what to do next. I was basically at home twiddling my thumbs and, and my wife would say, hey, go figure out a job. What are you doing all day watching TV? and get connected to Krish and he and I hit it off and we dated you know for I would say three months before he thought that I am the right fit to be brought into into his organization you know you know it was series a company back then this is 2016 2017 days and uh, he says yep I like you but I don't know what should be your role in the org. Really? 99% of the team is still in Chennai in, in 2017, 2016. So okay. product would be impossible for me because I'm sitting here and my developers and my product manager sitting there. It will be dissonance, hard to manage. Engineering, same thing. Marketing, they had a team working out of India. And then we artificially created this job for me called, hey, you run growth, which means, you know, you do everything of this and that, and you figure out how to propel the company into the next orbit. Okay. And then we analyze and, you know, kind of work out. And then I joined Charvi. Okay. So you're doing growth. And this is a company that I don't know if you could be open about what their revenues are at the time when you got started, but I'm looking right now as I'm going through, we're talking about, do you have like a ballpark of where their revenue is to give people a sense of how big they are? I don't know the revenue numbers now, but I'm I'm pretty confident they'll be between fifty million to hundred million ballpark ARR. Okay, so they wanted to get to that when you started out with them. I think they were in the single millions in revenue when you were there in the beginning. Yeah. Right. And they wanted to grow. And so their need for high growth is what led you to come up with the idea for column after. What talk about what? what that high growth need led you and your team to do that then you had to figure out how to undo later on. As a, as a growth person, what you're doing, you're experimenting. You say, okay, I'm going to do things in product. I'm going to things in marketing, sales, customer success, retention, partnership, PR, events, you name it. Every channel that we could think of, we ran an experiment. And guess what that does? Money and tools. And my mm-hmm. team would take my Silicon Valley bank card and then put it on file, buy tools, put it on campaigns. And the finance guy would call me at 90 days later saying, hey, I see a charge in your statement called SHP star blah, blah. What does that mean? Who did authorize? You know, who's spending? i say, I have no freaking idea. And we would kind of roll over to the next quarter and then we do an audit a year later and 
without disclosing numbers, we lost like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, which we should not have lost because these are tools which should have been canceled. That was one layer of the seed for Colum. Is there not a tool that gives me a first class view and more than that to the finance team to track all these purchases that are being made? Because it should not be sandwiched between my Uber rides, my you know, client dinner right. and my Slack and my social outreach, you know, tools. Is there not a better tool? That was the layer for Colum. And there wasn't one at the time. There was all companies were doing is going through finance departments like yours was? There were a couple of tools. You know, classically back then, SaaS management was IT management. So there were tools designed for IT to collect and give a fancy spreadsheet where you could say, yeah, I have tool A, tool B. And if somebody was not doing a single sign-on, you will have no idea that somebody's using a particular tool. So they were reliant on a Google Suite or an Okta to report back and they would crunch and show it, there was no tool that would say, oh, this is the money and this is the tool. There was nothing that was conjoining these two twins together. And that was the genesis. I need to do something that controls the money and controls the visibility of those tools. So let me see. Truebill was founded 2015 with essentially the same idea for for consumers. You founded Column in 2019, four years later. So for four years, there was not really a true bill for businesses. And you said, I'm going to go build this thing. Okay. That's right. And the, and the original idea was to do what? To give employees a credit card so that they each had their own credit card and wouldn't have to go to say the head of growth the way that they did it that the way that your team had to come back to you. And then through that, you can see who's charging for what and check in with them. Was that how simple the first version was? The first version was even simpler. The first version was, hey, how can I collect a list by connecting to their accounting system? So I would, Ooh. let's say you use QuickBooks. So I right. would connect to your QuickBooks and automatically siphon all the tools that you have paid money on we were very gung-ho on the fact that the tool has to be finance-centric because we had seen the IT-centric tools did not work where they would collect data from single sign-on systems. You know, If you yeah. do not know if you're paying for it, what is the utility of even knowing that I have it? Because you know, the core thing right. was the money that was being made, wasted. The problem with that approach, nobody would trust us with their businesses accounting system access we go who the f are you a random company with two guys and how can i give you access to my quickbooks because that has pnl data that has employee expense data so we basically thought we have to become the data generators rather than data analysts or somebody who's looking at other people's data and that's the card idea that came what if we create a card that is designed to be only used for SaaS software, cloud, and media. You can't buy Starbucks coffee, you can't pay for dinner, but only SaaS cloud and media. Boom. That and that was could, the moment. You could do that? You can have a credit card that keeps people from being able to use it for paying for a flight or dinner, but allow them to use it for SaaS? Okay, Absolutely. I want to know how. So 
One of my friends created, I, I kind of met him through this, these interviews I got to know. He's the founder of Empower. It's uh, one of these new banks. What I'm understanding from new banks like Empower and Mercury is essentially, this is overly simplifying, but they're tapping into the APIs of existing banks that are really doing the banking operation. And what these new banks are doing is doing the face and the customer service of, of the business. Is that how it works in the credit card world so that you can say, we're not creating our own credit card. We're just going to repackage somebody else's card. How does it work? So the two ways the credit cards work. One is exactly what you described. So you can take the infrastructure of an existing bank or a card vendor. So there are companies that enable you to do it. And you can launch a card for consumers saying, oh, this card is something where we will plant a tree every time you pay or, you know, expense or, right. or, you know, purchase dollar worth of products. Right. That's basically fronting the existing card vendor. You don't add any value other than marketing and, you know, a little bit of a creative idea in terms of how you do cashback rewards and stuff. We took a different approach. We said, we are not just doing credit card issuance. You know, that is an easy part, you know. We will authorize transactions as they come to us. So let's say you use our card, Andrew. You swipe it on, let's say, zoom.com. The, the Zoom transaction from, let's say, their payment gateway would come to Quolum's infrastructure. And we will say yes or no based on multiple rules, based on your spending limit, which is easy, and whether Zoom is a software product or not. So we have an internal white list of thousands of software products. And when you swipe your card, we will only authorize those transactions. And that makes it super different than everybody else in the world. So, but that means that you had to create your own Capital One, which is a credit card uh, a vendor, in addition to your own back office credit card um I don't know, permission-based system? Like, what did you have to build in order to get this off the ground to see if this idea was even worth pursuing? So we used two partners to at least get the card issuance part up and working. So we, we cannot issue cards on our own, just like Mercury is a front to Evolve Bank, as an example. Right. So we use two partners. One is Sutton Bank, and another one is Marketa that takes the Sutton Bank and use, gives us an API. But the API is only for creating brand new cards. That's it. Every transaction gets forwarded to us and we authorize that transaction in real time. Marketa or Sutton has no clue what this transaction contains, whether it's Zoom or not. We inspect the payload and say, yep, Andrew is charging this on Zoom. He has a limit of 500. He's an employee of this organization and he's he can go and buy Zoom as a product. And we say yes, and Zoom gets money. I'm looking at Marketa's website right now. It says, instantly issue and process card payments with our open API platform. Do they also issue, you You design the card under your name, Column's name. They then, des they print out the card or they, they, I don't know, create the card and then they ship it out to your customers on your behalf? They just give a card number to us. Okay, and then it's on you to actually create the piece of plastic. Or as a piece of plastic or use it as a virtual card on our dashboard. So okay. think of think of the layers in this business, right? So yeah. a, a card 
network is a marketplace. You know, Visa is the perfect marketplace and MasterCard is. On one side, you have merchants, which is acquirers, which are their banks, and the payment gateway to connect these pieces. On the other side is cardholders like me. And between me and Visa is a card issuing network, which is the likes of Chase or Marketa or Sutton. They give us an API to create a card on the fly. So let's say you, you become Colum's customer, you'll be on our dashboard, you click a button, you create a card on the fly, and that's done by using Marketa's API. And see, you yeah. use the card number to swipe and, the, and then we process the transaction on your behalf. It seems like what Twilio did for text and phone, they do for credit card. I saw the snap and the look of recognition. I had no idea this infrastructure existed. Got it. So you didn't have to invest deeply in that part of the business. You can focus on the things that matter to you, which is how do you set up the rules? How do you make it easy for people to cancel a, a subscription or to restrict subscription, right? You set all that up. How much money did it take? How much investment did you, did you take in in order to set that up? We raised a seed round of four and a half million and okay. uh, took us a solid 18 months to get this whole infrastructure off the ground. How did you know that it was worth doing, that your customers were willing to use yet another card that was restricted to this and all these things that you envisioned? How did you know that this made sense? I talked to close to, I would say, 30, 35 odd CFOs, essentially did a cold outreach on LinkedIn to CFOs who are not connected to me at all. You know, CFOs who are in my second degree. And this is a nuance I'm gonna explain later. And many of these people said, yes, what you're creating is useful. As long as you are in the flow of money, you let me control. The card is not a hindrance, but a lubricant to my business. I'm gonna give you a green light. And that gave us confidence to build this and start this and launch this. Today, we have more than 50 customers using the product and the card every day. How many card uh, card holders, individual card holders are there? Uh, we have issued close to 400 cards. How do you know that um, that you're not leaving out good SaaS vendors just because they are small. It feels like one of the reasons that people are trying to sign up for their own software is because they discover something brand new that management wouldn't have signed up in agreement with. And how are you able to stay on top of all that? So we, we have a catalog of around 120,000 SaaS products. Uh, we have a research team of two that is on a daily basis, looking at product hunt, looking at announcements from seed mm -hmm. funds, and then collating all of that and adding that data to our catalog every week to not leave out the smallest of the SaaS vendors who have just started. All right, and then now marketing, you're the growth guy who helped Chargebee grow. What are you doing now for your own business to grow? I think two things we started writing good quality content kind of you know table stakes at this moment and that is giving us a stream of inbound traffic that comes in we also do quite a bit of outbound so we, our target is today companies that do between 10 million to 150 million in revenue finance teams that are struggling to pay and buy SaaS and that's the cohort we are going after what is happening is SaaS has grown so fast and you'll be surprised at this, Andrew, that finance team does not know, is HubSpot different from an outreach? 
Is outreach different from a mind tickle? Is Salesforce different from every other sales tools? Because the nuance is known to the salespeople, to the marketing folks. So when they see this, I have two invoices and the products look very similar. Their website exactly has the same messaging. Why should I need to approve? So we become their friends. We help them annotate these invoices further and they start loving the story that we are telling them. You're not just approving, but you're getting yourself more intelligent every day on the products that your company's using. I didn't realize that you went as small as 100,000 annual spend. That's a pretty small size, even SMB, right? You have a couple of contractors, a few employees, either one will get you to 100,000 in annual spend at this point, especially if you, if you consider that we're all working remote and all the expenses are now online. I'm looking at the payment on it. You don't charge a fee for it. You issue cards. Is your money coming in from transaction fees, the stuff that the that the purchaser has to pay every time they process a card? That is where it comes from. So the money does not primarily come from the interchange as you know it is called and monetized. We price ourselves as a SaaS product. So for somebody who does, let's say, a million dollar in spend, we charge anywhere between thirty to forty thousand dollars. The card is just the front end, Andrew. You know, the bulk of the work is behind the scenes. You know, ensuring that the vendors do not double charge you, and you will be surprised at that. Uh, we we collate all the invoices. The biggest one is we look at your usage. So let's say you bought five hundred seats of Zoom, just to keep on the topic and 200 of your employees never created a meeting, we're gonna flag you at the end of the quarter saying, hey, you're wasting $10,000. How do you know to do that? Dude, we had that situation here at Mixergy. I was afraid to even let go of a single Zoom subscription. The people who stopped working here had it because I just didn't want anyone to have that embarrassing situation with a customer or with an interviewee where the thing just ends at 40 minutes. How are you able to know who logged in and tied back? Zoom has public APIs and interestingly enough, so many of these modern SaaS vendors, they have public APIs. Using those APIs, you can get the metadata of meetings in case of Zoom, uh, usage of storage, how many 1-800 number dial-ins have happened. You can collect all those metrics and then crunch it and say, oh, Nobody is creating meetings and you can cancel those accounts. In case of, you know, let's say you have 15 employees, actually Zoom provides a dashboard you can log in, but it's slightly painstaking. You have to kind of drill down and look at, hey, who logged in and who did not, look at the meetings and stuff. We do this automatically. We'll, we'll use the APIs, crunch that number and give you a report saying, oh, Jack, Jill and Mary, 20% usage. You know, Joe, Jill and, uh, you know, Maria, 50% usage, and then you could take a decision saying, hey, let me call them to downsize or ask them why they are not using the product. Have they bought a WebEx or a BlueJeans or a competing Zoom mm -hmm. product? Or oh, they're right. generally not that. using That if there's a new thing that comes out and they're using that instead or they've signed up for that instead, because you're looking at it, you can see that. Oh, that is, that's absolutely brilliant, especially in the world of, uh, of meeting software, where frankly... I'm now, I'm not on Zoom. You and I are now talking using Riverside. I found that I stopped using Zoom for a long time and um, frankly, we should probably cancel that Zoom. But but the fact is, this is something that you could do with software. All right, I get where you're going with this. Why is the company called Colum? Q-U-O-L-U-M. Colum actually is a Tamil word and this is again, 
reliving my ChargeV memory. So, you know, ChargeV is based out of Chennai, a beautiful city. And I have been a guest at many of the Airbnb hosts. So I used to travel to India, to Chennai every couple of months and spend like, you know, a few weeks living there, working with my team over there. And in one such situation, I was living in this Airbnb home and this lady, every morning she would draw this beautiful floral pattern outside her home. By the time I would come back in the evening after my work, that floral pattern has faded away. And she would repeat this the same next same thing next morning. Um, they, she would use a ground chalk uh, a rice powder, not a chalk powder. So she basically ground rice powder, very beautifully drawn. And each one of those pattern would have meanings. It would carry stories of universe, mythology, uh, Chennai's own culture, and portray to the world that this home is open for visitors. After Chargevi, when it got done, I was kind of thinking of what should you name your startup? And this is, again, the entrepreneur, right? Hey, I want to create a business. The first thing is, is there a domain? What is the name, right? That moment. <laughs> I couldn't find anything that had all the you know check boxes checked and then basically uh, chanced upon this, hey, how about column? Of course, we write it slightly differently, you know, with a Q, and that's the genesis of the name of the company. All right. Congratulations. I think you found another winner. I like that you have the domain. I wish Twitter was a little bit more organized because nobody is using the Colum Twitter account, right? It's just it's just a suspended account. It's going to take you way too long to use it, meanwhile, to get it. And they they would be willing to give it to you, but they're way too annoying about their whole internal process. Meanwhile, you you could be using it well. Well, now you're Colum HQ on Twitter, and I should say, I, I kind of came into this with the understanding that you were just enterprise. I can see that you're clearly even SMB, and those accounts are free, I should say, right? Up to $100,000 in spend, 25 cards, and so on. There's a, there's a free plan for anyone who's interested. I'm not getting a share of any of these sales, I should say. I just I just like talking to you, and I like this technology. I just like that it's out there. Um, before we go, I want to I wanna say something that I've said in past interviews, I'm in a new office in Austin, and I'm wondering how the sound is. This dude, John Bach, who's a mechanical engineer, sent me this long message, and then he did a Zoom conversation with me, one of the few times I did use Zoom, and he goes, I think, he starts looking around, and he gives me suggestions. He made me realize, we have kind of um, padded parts of this office, but I didn't do anything to the ceiling. So now I'm gonna get some ceiling tiles that will allow the audio to be absorbed instead of bouncing back. The reason I'm saying this is first to say thank you to John Bach, and then second to say that anyone else who's listening, if it's sounding off, I'm in a new space. I'm very excited about the looks of this place. I'm very excited about the whole ambiance. Indus, you haven't even seen it. This desk is on a wheel so I could get different backdrops and I could get the view of this beautiful, like we got five acres here in Austin. I want to see all of them. Um, but I want to make sure that it sounds right. So if you're out there and you have any feedback for me, do what John did. Just email me, andrew at mixergy.com, andrew at mixergy.com. I love to get your feedback. And I want to also thank the two sponsors that made this interview happen. The first, if you're hiring developers, go to lemon.io slash mixergy. And the second, when you're ready to do, to make investments, angel investments, team up with other people, go to vaubon.com slash mixergy. And finally, I'd be remiss. I don't even know what remiss is, but... People say it in this context. So I would be remiss if I didn't say Colum, Q-U-O-L-U-M.com. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm going to say goodbye, and then I'm going to go look up what remiss Super. means. Amazing talking to you, Andrew. Thanks. Same here.